0: Well, good morning and welcome to our morning service. It's lovely to see you all here this morning. Uh, A couple of extra little uh, notices, just to to clarify things a little bit. Although the service this afternoon at 5pm, although people in the building are going to be under 70, it's a service for everyone. It's our big carol service, and we would love for you all to tune in at home. Uh, We're really thinking of people at home as we do it. So we're doing it especially for you sat at home. It's just nicer to do things with people in front of us. So don't miss that. Please do try to tune in and get details. Um, let, me, let me pray for us before we look at um, God's word together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is a living word and that it speaks and that even though those words that we read earlier were written some 2,600 years ago, They are full of hope and life for your people today. So help us as we look at them together now this morning. Lord, may we be encouraged and reminded of all these many reasons that we have to put our trust in you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Hope. Hope is the banner that we've kind of put across all of the Christmas stuff. It's been plastered across our flyers Uh, for all of the events that we're putting on this year for Christmas, hope. And I'm sure you'll agree that it's a pretty apt uh, apt way to address the end of a year like what we've uh, just experienced in 2020 as a nation. We need to believe, don't we, that things are going to get better in the months that lie ahead of us in the new year. As a people, we need to believe that. The Methodist minister, he was American, a guy called uh, Halford Lecoq, in one of his books, describes a town in Maine where the residents had been notified uh, that a dam was being built and that their town was going to be completely flooded out. In the months before the flooding, as people made their preparations to leave the town, in the words of Lecoq, The town became more and more bedraggled. You can just imagine people walking around in that town, just a bit fed up, a bit hopeless. What was the point in repairing roads? Why would I bother? Why why put another coat of paint on my house? Absolutely no point. So the place just started to look shabby and depressing. I mean, why even bother putting your litter in the bin? What's the point? The author comments... Where there is no hope for the future, there's just no power in the present. Yeah, there's hopelessness. We need hope to carry on, otherwise our circumstances start to overwhelm us. It's part of being a human, isn't it? We need that. Well, what's what's that got to do with Isaiah chapter 9? Well, a lot. Just look at those opening uh, words in verse 2. Of this, this prophecy, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, deep, deep darkness, a light has dawned. So Isaiah has some words of good news in this passage, uh, which, is why we read, which is why we read them at Christmas. But they are against a setting, they're against a backdrop of stark darkness, of deep darkness. So this prophecy was given to the southern kingdom of Judah during the days of King Ahaz. It's nice to think a little bit about some of these readings that we have at Christmas, isn't it? Ahaz, the king at the time, was a very wicked man. He sacrificed his own child to one of the false gods that he worshipped. He was that wicked. And because, as they say, a fish rots from the head down... The nation was led astray by their king, and they suffered the consequences of their sin because many of them would have followed his example as their leader. They would have followed what he was worshipping and done what he was doing. And so God used the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel up in the north, to punish Judah in the south. That's a very unusual thing when you read through the Old Testament because you normally think of Judah as being the better ones. Israel teamed up with the uh, with the kingdom of Aram or Syria and they they ran a campaign of terror against Judah in the south in one particularly brutal battle you can read about Judah lost 120,000 of their best fighting men in one battle and 200,000 of their women and children and relatives were taken in that incident and beaten and made slaves that were later released. But they were dark days indeed. Think about that. But there were also in Judah, in the southern kingdom, under this rotten king, there were those who remained faithful to the Lord. They trusted the Lord as their God. And they're mentioned in chapter 8. And if you've got your Bible open, you might want to just flick over the page and look at chapter 8. In verses 1 to 10, Isaiah speaks of uh, the word of the Lord foretelling terrible destruction coming. Assyria, Assyria, this is, not Syria, Assyria, the great and brutal superpower up in the north, led by Tiglath-Pileser, great name, isn't it? They were going to sweep down, it says in chapter 8, from the north like an overwhelming flood rolling down the country. And Israel was actually going to be swept away. But, says Isaiah, that flood as it comes roaring down a country is not just going to stop with Judah, with, with Israel. It's going to sweep down into Judah. And it's quite graphic language that Isaiah uses here. In fact, he says, the waters of the flood are going to come down and go, going to go right up to your neck. You'll be struggling to stop yourself from drowning, is what he's saying, in this destruction that comes. And those are scary days to be living in for God's people, aren't they? But for those who are still faithful, uh, who are the people Isaiah's addressing later in chapter eight, for them, Isaiah says this. It's in verses 12 to 14 of chapter eight. He says this to them as, as some advice. Do not call conspiracy everything these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it the lord almighty is the one that you are to regard as holy he is the one you are to fear he is the one you are to dread and he will be a sanctuary those are wonderful words go home and read those again words of hope to god's people now the words of the prophets, prophets like Isaiah at this time in particular, and actually just largely, they were disregarded. People didn't listen to them. Nobody listened. In fact, the irony is that Isaiah is actually told in chapter 6 when he's called, when he's called to be the prophet, he's actually told and actually, you know, people are not going to listen to you, Isaiah. You're going to go and preach and people won't listen. You're going to have an audience that is, in in the words of, of God, ever hearing But never understanding. Yeah, (laughs) they'll hear you and they'll probably just come to completely the wrong conclusions if they do. Except for a few faithful in the nation. Just that few that were faithful. Those who loved God. Those who were listening for God's word, who wanted to hear God's word. Well, they will hear God's word. That's always been the case when God's word is proclaimed. Do you know that? It was the same with Jesus, wasn't it? In fact, that very verse from Isaiah 6 gets quoted, Jesus quotes it, doesn't he, when he explains why he's telling parables. Very few people listen to God's word. But those who do listen to God's word, who do want to hear from God, for them, there are words here of great, of tremendous hope. And I'm going to share them with you this morning. So let's take a look. This is why we read them at Christmas. And this hope starts with a great celebration being told to these people, remember, in darkness. Have a look. Verse 2 again. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. As men rejoice when dividing the plunder. There's lots of pictures there, aren't there? But can you see the rejoicing? The promise starts with God coming to these people in darkness and turning on the light, the bright light. It's very graphic. You can picture these people, can't you, living in shadows, living in darkness. It's depressing, isn't it? You ever had that when you've been sitting reading a book in the lounge and, you know, you started, the sun was shining, at this time of year, you know, you suddenly look up and you're blinking thinking, Come on, it's, the whole house is dark. You flick that light on and suddenly it, it lifts your spirits, doesn't it? But here you've got these people in shadows, and they're in shadows because their nation is corrupt, right? They're living in a nation, they can't believe what the nation is doing around them. Evil is going unchecked. And you're reading it in the papers, in the headlines every day, and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, look at this nation. God has been sidelined. He's ignored. Idolatry is everywhere. People don't care about God anymore. People don't respect the sanctity of life anymore, sacrificing their children to their gods. And the government's making immoral policies and setting up shrines. Imagine living in a world like that. Perhaps you don't have to imagine too hard. King Ahaz had raided the temple treasury. He'd gone to the heart of their religion, taken all the money out of it, and he paid it to Assyria so that they would help him. And he'd done that instead of turning to God for help. He'd turned to the great superpower up in the north. And we read a little bit later on, he goes on a trip to meet uh, the king there, and he goes up to, to meet him in Damascus, And while he's in Damascus, he sees an altar to a foreign god that that king seems to particularly like. And he thinks to himself, oh, do you know what? I'm going to get a replica of that altar made. And he sends back instructions for a pagan altar. And he has someone make a replica of it and put it in the temple in Jerusalem and get rid of the the, the bronze temple, the bronze altar, and replace it with this temple so they can offer all their offerings on that Oh, and of course, he keeps God's altar, keeps it off in a corner somewhere. He says, I'm going to use that for decision-making every now and then. If I just need to, you know, get a second opinion. Is it unbelievable? Can you imagine the muttering around the table in the homes of those who are still faithful in Jerusalem? I'm sure most of you have muttered the same things yourself. Can you believe the government? <laughs> Can you believe what Ahaz is up to now? where is this nation going it's going down the drain and then says verse two light dawns the sun rises shadows are dispelled that's the promise everything in these verses is increase and joy isn't it look at them it's like harvest time it's going to be a harvest says god wealth and prosperity everywhere Everyone in Judah is singing on the porches, summertime. And living is easy, fish are jumping and the cotton's high, or some Jewish equivalent to that. It's like a time, he says, when, when men divide the plunder. Yeah, plunder, think of that, treasures from a victory. A battle's been won. And everyone is sharing in the spoils of the battle. It's great, isn't it? God's promises are a time, are of a time of celebration that lies ahead for his people. That's what Isaiah's is saying. That's the first thing. The second thing, not just a great celebration, a great victory. Look at verse four. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire so this promise also involves a great victory This great victory happened and what kind of victory according to verse four well it's the kind of victory that if you look through the history books is the victory they had against midian midian that's important Now, I'm sure you know the story. You might need me to just jog your memory slightly. The victory against Midian comes from the book of Judges. Remember when we did that? Gideon is told to raise an army against the Midianites. And the Midianites are described as being vast in number. You know, when when the scouts go to look out at the Midian camp, the camels of the Midians make the valleys change color they look like they're covered in sand because there are so many camels that the midianites have they're a huge army but god reduces gideon's men down to 300 to face them it's a staggering story isn't it and god says this to gideon he tells him why he says you've got too many men for me to deliver midian into their hands In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. You see the point that God's going to make in this battle with Midian? It's not going to be your strength that does it. It's going to be mine. And the Midianites are defeated soundly. 180 swordsmen, 1,000 swordsmen are slain. The yoke of Midian is shattered, we're told. The people enjoy freedom and prosperity under Gideon's reign as a judge. And he dies at a good old age, we're told. So what is characteristic then of this great victory? The characteristic is that God does it. God does it. Gideon and his 300 men, if you read this story, it's staggering. It's like it's theatrical. They just stand around the camp, you can imagine them surrounding the camp, like theatre in the round, looking down at the camp down there. And they've got uh, jars with torches in them and they've got trumpets. They blow the trumpets, they smash the jars, so it's like the spotlights are now on the stage. And then God does everything. All that remains for Gideon's army is to do a clean-up job on the retreating enemy. And that is, I think, the sense of verse 6 here in Isaiah 9. Look, the battle's been won. The war is finally over for God's people. And their only job is to clean up the battlefield. They pile up the military hardware, the, the boots and the cloaks of their enemies, and they just set a fire ablaze. It's a clean-up job. God wins the victory. A great celebration a great victory and isaiah now gives us the reason for it all in the last remaining verses take a look verse six for because to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace Of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You see what's what's in there? Here is a son born for the nation, given to God's people, a son given. Bible commenter Alec Mateer points out, and listen to this sentence, in his coming, all that results from his coming is secured. That's what we're being told here in this first line. That's a Christmas headline right there, isn't it? If you put that one on your Christmas cards, in his coming, all that results from his coming is secured. Just because he came. Now, it's all quite uh, subtle, but look at how this prophecy continues. The government will be upon his shoulder. It's very, very interesting here. Have a look at uh, what happens in verse 4. Notice how the burden of oppression has moved from being on the shoulder of the people, there in verse 4, under their great enemy at exactly the same time as a leader comes and shoulders that burden of rule for them. The burden shifts. It's on him. To be under the rule of this king is a life where your burdens are lifted. They're gone. He takes the weight for you as he governs. He takes the responsibility for your well-being. All you need to do is put yourself under this king. Bow the knee to this king, and your burden is gone. And then we see his glorious name. That's wonderful, isn't it? It literally is wonderful. Uh, In the verses that follow, you know, rulers often are given uh, many names, aren't they? And those names are given to them as characteristics of their rule are revealed, aren't they? So Alfred was not called the great until history had witnessed the greatness of his rule which was very great indeed so you call him Alfred the Great. William was not the conqueror at birth was he? It was a title given to him because of what he achieved. A better example actually is that of uh, King Solomon. You know David gave him that birth name Solomon which means the man of peace but God gave him another name Jedidiah, the beloved of Yahweh, the beloved of the Lord. In fact, Solomon, arguably David's greatest son, really, for what he did for the kingdom, was the only son of David that God gave a name to, until Isaiah 9. Until Isaiah 9. Because here we have David's greater son. And he's named because of the size of this hope with a greater name. What a name it is that God gives him. Have a look at it. We've got four things here. First one is wonderful counsellor. This son, this great son of David will be wonderful counsellor. It's a title that either means a supernatural counsellor or one who gives supernatural counsel. But it's supernatural it's wonderful it speaks of a king whose whose counsel and whose decisions are supernaturally wise it's like he knows what's going to happen and how to handle everything solomon as the wisest man who ever lived was able to lead the nation into an era of prosperity and peace like it had never had or ever had again but he was just a man And though he had great wisdom for leading his people, he didn't have wisdom in leading himself. In fact, his rule ends and his son takes over and the kingdom's divided almost immediately. The chickens come home to roost. But this king will not just be a great counsellor. He's going to be a supernatural one. Wouldn't it be great to live in a kingdom ruled by a a king who always knows the best way? Always makes the right decision. Never fails in every policy, everything that he does. Wonderful counsellor. Secondly, mighty God. Look, the word mighty here actually has the sense of being a warrior. Uh, You remember, David had his SAS troops, his crack troops. They were called the mighty men of David, the elite. This king will be God the warrior warrior god not just leading but fighting for defending protecting his people everlasting father that's the next title it sounds like an odd title but as alec mateer suggests the idea behind the name father here is that his rule follows the pattern of divine fatherhood like god is a father a characteristic of this wise, mighty king is that he governs like a father to his people. You know, we love never, you know, we've never had a prime minister you would have sort of thought of as, oh, he's fatherly in the way he takes care of us, have we? But imagine a king who governs his people with loving discipline, with great concern for the weak, for the vulnerable, for the helpless, always caring, nurturing third the, the, the fourth title then the final one is prince of peace look and the word for peace here you probably know the jewish word for peace shalom he's the prince of shalom that, that conveys a much bigger idea than just peace just you know the ceasing of hostilities this is a word that includes the ideas of of soundness of wholeness of well-being under this king, all conflicts end. All that is break broken is made whole again, do you see? All that is wounded is healed, it's made sound. So in words of tremendous hope, Isaiah tells God's people that though they are in dark days, though the clouds of doom are heavy over their heads, though death is casting a shadow on them, They are to take refuge in their God and to trust his wonderful promise because a king is coming. A king given by God himself. A king who will be the cause of great celebration as a great victory is won over every enemy. A king whose reign will be characterized by flawless supernatural wisdom in leadership, who'll protect and shield them as a mighty warrior who will be a father to them in tender care and discipline, and who will bring peace and wholeness to every area of life. That's a promise, isn't it? That is a hooray promise. Now, what were those who first received these promises in Isaiah's day to make of all of this? You would wonder, wouldn't you? What do they make of this? Well, Ahaz, remember wicked King Ahaz I told you about earlier? Well, he died fairly shortly after and his son came to the throne. His son's name was Hezekiah. And he was arguably the best king that Judah had to date. The record of uh, two kings, book of two kings, says this about Hezekiah. Listen. 2 Kings 18 verse 5. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him amongst all the kings of Judah, either before him after him now that is an amazing banner to put over a king isn't it that's great hezekiah undid much of the wicked policies and the idolatry that his father had committed he tore down all the shrines he cleaned the place up and he was a man of great faith and integrity shortly after he came to the throne judah watched on as isaiah's prophecies came true up in the north Assyria did sweep down like a flood and eliminated the northern kingdom of Israel, and they watched it happening. And the flood then did come down into Judah. The new ruler of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, is gone. Now he had a man called Sennacherib. Sennacherib sent threatening envoys to Jerusalem, telling them to surrender or die. The armies gathered, vast armies from the superpower. But Hezekiah did the right thing. He went to the table and he laid everything out before the Lord. And without Judah lifting a finger, the angel of the Lord visited the Assyrian camp and put to death 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrians. And they went home with their tails between their legs. And I guess, don't you, if you live to see all of that, Well, you might well have assumed that right there and then God's promises have come to pass. Just as Isaiah had said, was not Hezekiah this promised son? But a careful reader would still have been a bit disappointed. They'd still have been scratching their heads a little bit. No doubt the events of the reign of Hezekiah followed the general pattern of these promises, where these promises we've just read are going, to a point. But they just don't go far enough. That's the problem. If this was all about Hezekiah, then the hope that God had called his people to, well, it was pretty good, but it was not great. And we're talking about great promises, aren't we? Was Hezekiah really a supernatural counsellor? He made some pretty poor decisions toward the end of his life. You can read about them. Awful. Did he really bring about unending peace? Well, he saw a great victory, didn't he? But about a 100 years later, Babylon completely destroys Jerusalem and exiles the people. That's not great peace, is it? And of course, the really obvious problem, actually, the elephant in the room, as it were, is found in that last line of verse seven, look. This son, this king, will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Well, Hezekiah didn't do that. Hezekiah was not a well man, actually. Later on, he didn't live very long at all. He lived, he'd made it to about 54 years old. And in actual fact, 15 years earlier, so. Before even reaching the age of 40, he had a sickness that was threatening to take his life. And God said, you know, you're going to die. And he pled for another 15 years that God gave him. That's hardly forever, is it? It's barely middle-aged. Now, the prophecies of the Old Testament are often like this. Here's a a picture I put up on, on the screen for you. It's a bit like looking at a mountain range. You ever done that? Oh, it's depressing when you're walking up a mountain and you do this, isn't it? You know, you look out and there's those peaks in front of you and you can see the peaks in in the distance, but they look like they're one and the same peak. But what you can't see is there's a great hoofing great big valley between the two. Likewise, many prophecies are like this, aren't they? Some of uh, Hezekiah's reign looks similar to what Isaiah was ultimately talking about. But there'd be a valley of time, some 600 years, between Hezekiah and the ultimate fulfilment of what Isaiah is saying. The ultimate fulfilment, of course, came when Jesus came, because he's really the only king that fits the bill. He is God's great king, Jesus. The son of David, who was born as a man, but given by God. God that's what we that's what we that's what we remember at Christmas isn't it Jesus is the one standing on that high peak in the distance there he's the only man to live for whom the title Emmanuel God with us El Gibor mighty God and even everlasting father can have any real meaning because they're absolutely true to the letter about him he was God in the flesh, God of God, light of light. And his is the greatest victory. He's the mighty warrior who's fought on your and my behalf against our greatest enemies, Satan's sin and death. Without us lifting a finger, the war has been won by our mighty warrior God. And now, if he is our king, we have peace, real peace, real shalom with God himself. All debts have been paid. The sickness of our sin has been made sound again. And that relationship which was broken by our sin, the relationship between us and God has been made whole. I wonder, have you got that peace? You may be listening at home. Have you got that peace? Trusting in the real king. Bowing the knee to him. If you do, then Isaiah tells us that we join in the greatest celebration. For he will reign forever. His reign will never come to an end. And we will reign with him. Jesus is our hope. In him is the certain hope and the culmination of every promise that God has made to us. And that is what we see when we look in the manger and see that little baby. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son has been given. And so I encourage you, brothers and sisters, If you're finding these days that we live in now to be dark, and I guess many of you do, if over the Christmas season you're tempted to despair as you look at your present circumstances, as you look at the direction things are going, look to the manger. Read these words of promise once again from Isaiah chapter 9 and let the bright sunrise of our living hope Shine in and warm your soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have never failed to keep a promise. And your promises never disappoint. We thank you for your son given for us, given to us, who walked in obedience as he served us and gave his life up for us on the cross. We thank you for the hope that he has brought us in this dark world of sin and rebellion. A saviour who has brought us everlasting peace and joy. Help us to take these words of yours to heart. That we might experience that joy even today. And help us to walk daily in obedience to every word of our great King. In whose good name we pray. Amen.